Hello and welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast. Before we begin, just a massive thank you to however you are listening to this. We really do appreciate your support. We record the podcast every Monday and if you do enjoy it, make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Why not drop us a review while you're there? Hello and welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast. I'm your host, Ben James. I'm joined by a very special guest to kick off the New Year's 2021. And what better way to look ahead to the New Year than to be joined by one of the most exciting content creators in rugby, Squidge, Robbie Owen, the man behind the YouTube channel. How are you doing, Robbie? Yeah, I'm all right. How are you? I'm <laughs> not too bad. Um, broken all the New Year's resolutions yet? Only four days in? Um, I decided to skip it and just not do New Year's resolutions because the first one that came to mind was just like making a vaccine. Um, and that was kind of done for me um, and was far beyond me. So I decided not worth doing. Um, and I, I moved on. Feeling very lazy. Yeah. I feel, I feel you could have done it if you tried. Uh, no, if Dolly Parton can solve it, so can I. Um, yeah, exactly. Because I, I am basically Dolly Parton. That's what I've been aspiring to with all of the, the YouTube content. It has been said that you are the Dolly Parton of the rugby world. That is that is the most flattering thing anyone's ever said about me. Mainly by um, Dolly Parton. Really? Yeah. I didn't know she was an avid fan. Loves rugby. Yeah. I, I No, she's a um, she's Bordeaux fan, isn't she? Inexplicably. Yes. And she's regularly turning up to watch the Dallas Jackals and MLR. Who isn't? <laughs> is the question. Um, Honestly, their stands, they've got like, her, McConaughey, all of the... Oh, Richard Linklater, acclaimed Oscar-nominated writer-director. All of them, they're all turning up to watch every single week. I love rugby in America. It's going to take off. <laughs> um, I'm not really sure where to go on this tangent now because I'm scared of what I'll say next when it comes to Tony Parton. <laughs> so we'll move on quickly <laughs> and hastily. So let's... I think the point of this podcast is to basically run through our wishes for the new year, 2021, because 2020 wasn't um, a great year. Spoiler alert. I don't want to ruin how it ended, but um, it wasn't a good year. <laughs> um, on or off the pitch, to be honest, was it? No, no, you know, I've had better. Um, I've, had, I've had years that didn't have global pandemics in them. I suppose when you look back at your life, um, the ratio of years you had global pandemics mm. to not having global pandemics is 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 surprisingly good. Yeah, I I mean I've generally I think done quite well this far. So the fact that I've had one massive global pandemic really I think is a reflection on me having done great yeah. rather than you know the world or anyone who likes eating bat sandwiches. It's part of the course, isn't it? I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. We're, we're doing all right. You know, you, you can't expect to not have a global pandemic at any point in your life. Like, that'd yeah. just be unreasonable. Come on. Have a word with yourself. And, and, and same with, with rugby, isn't it? Um, you know, <laughs> you've got to expect to come fifth in the Six Nations and then <laughs> fifth in some made-up tournament in the autumn. I can't remember where we came. It, yeah, fifth. Fifth? no seventh. No, yeah, yeah, because the we came fifth, but that's only because basically we beat Georgia and Fiji didn't play a single game. Yes, which is lucky, um, and won't be the case in the World Cup unless it is. Unless it gets played back in a few years' time. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> after Dolly Parton being appointed Fiji's attack coach, fails to see them take off. <laughs> it's the the biggest chance we have. Um, yeah, well, it's a, I think it's an interesting one that 
year because because Wales were affected by the pandemic and by the lockdown that we mentioned, in case anyone forgot there was that global pandemic and everything shut down for months. Yeah. Uh, it was like Wales a seven-month seven period, wasn't it, where we all made banana yeah. bread? Yes, and uh, watched Tiger King, which I still haven't seen. Um, I haven't watched it either. Uh, no, I'm confused why a documentary on Martin Johnson did so well. But uh, I, still, oh, which, I started watching The Crown, which I think is the same thing. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's the same, same thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're exactly the same. Uh, it's they just monarchy. put different names on. Yeah. It's monarchy. What, what could <laughs> change? Like, you know that thing that uh, Netflix does where it puts out like a different image based on what kind of thing you watch to try and tie you in? It's that. It's just a different one of those. Like it's a different, you know, it's like there's there's oh. one thumbnail for Shrek that's just the the king lying really alluringly and sexily, um, which is obviously what I get served. Um so, yeah, so there was a global pandemic. Yeah, Wales got affected, I think, disproportionately to everyone else. Uh, Wales got hit harder by that. Um, and you could see before things were caught off where things were starting to go. Yeah. And then you saw, you could still see traces of it, I think. And it sort of became the case, it was like one passage per game in the autumn, uh, other than Italy, which is slightly different, but um, where they kind of looked good and you could kind of see what they were trying to do. Um so, you know, against Ireland, it was right after Lloyd Williams came on, which led me to realise he is the saviour of Welsh rugby. Um, and it just kind of became that kind of case that there were positives, just you had to kind of go looking for them. You know, they weren't immediately obvious because they didn't necessarily result in tries or points, which is what you want to win rugby matches. It's a radical idea, that, yeah. trying, trying to score more points in the opposition I'm not sure it'll catch on but we'll, we'll, we'll see um, yeah it, it was a weird one wasn't it because mm. I, I remember sort of Stephen Jones speaking at the start of the autumn about how you know the, the time in camp was going to be a godsend to them after so long out mm. and, and I guess when you look at all the, the nations in world rugby you know n- nobody wants to blame the pandemic but obviously England England are very settled where they are mm. Um, to the point where Eddie Jones has just stopped coaching the attack. Yes. Uh, until the Lions, you know, because he knows what the team's strengths are and he knows what the, the strengths in the laws are, which is basically <laughs> don't yeah. have the ball and you'll be yeah. okay. So he knows that and he's doing very well. Scotland have sort of found a found a happy medium with a, with a slightly more yeah. pragmatic game. So they're, they're happy. Ireland are trying to play like, move move away from their game plan like us. But they do also still have like a decent pack who couldn't bully us. They keep getting dragged back in, don't they? Yeah. They keep, they keep trying. It's like a gangster movie. Like every time they try and get out, they just keep getting dragged back in. They keep trying to move this expansive thing. And again, they'll do it once or twice. And then they'll come up against Wales or Scotland or, you know, they can just then move on from there. They can just go back to it which is actually a really useful thing to have a second plan, you know, in the way where it was, haven't been able to revert back to Gatlin ball, uh, which is a shame because it was good and effective. Because I felt like Ireland, obviously, they, they do that and then they play England and then they remember why they want to evolve because it's like, oh yeah, yes. we, we, we can't bully England because they have bigger players. But <laughs> with us, I don't know, with Wales, it felt like, there were sort of times when you could see the pivot was just trying to be pragmatic in the autumn. Mm. And yet it didn't really work. Probably just sort of down to more, just kicking tactics, maybe, yeah. you know, people not really understanding that Netley has its own sort of climate and sense, you know, gravity and, and all mm. these different weather factors that only Netley has. 
and just like you know like constantly looking for like the up and under yeah and then realizing that the ball's somehow gone 30 yards behind you because <laughs> just the wind is, is is a ridiculous fact and that's i just felt that they, they they didn't they didn't quite revert back to full pragmatism they just sort of picked and chose random bits that didn't really work in a game like that, that scotland game was just mm. just you know it's just awful sort of game manager when you think of the conditions and oh yeah when the best kick of the day was done by Fowler Yes. That, that, that tells you a lot. The amazing thing is how quickly you could, when you're watching that, work out that this wind is mad. You're not going to get any purchase on an up and under or a kind of any sort of high raking kick. Um, I'm not high raking, whatever, high kick. Um, and how quickly Scotland figured that out. You know, it took Scotland three or four kicks and they went, okay, no, there's no point doing this. This wind isn't changing. And they started kicking far lower. Um, and they and, lost two fly halves as well. <laughs> exactly. And they had to change fly halves like six times. So when Jamie Ritchie stepped in at 10, he was still slotting those kicks through and, you know, delivering them low. Like there was either a consensus or everyone kept realising it individually. Whereas no one except Falatau in Wales seemed to, to realise that. And Falatau, of course, doesn't speak. So he couldn't tell anyone that, wait a second. Um, so, yeah, it was a... It, because as much as you can blame the coaches, a lot of that came down to, you know, Dan Bigger and it would have been Gareth Davis at nine. No. Um, uh, was it, oh God, was it Webb? No. I can't, I can't remember. I think it was Gareth Davis. Um, I think it was, yeah. Um, who, I should know that really. Um, They've started yeah. five scrum halves this year, I think. Oh, I know. it. It's, I think Gareth Edwards was on the bench for one of them and Terry... <laughs> Chico Hopkins yeah. has one more caps, which is nice. <laughs> Tavis Noyle's back, which is the amazing thing. Um, I I would have put money on Gareth playing before Tavis again, but there we go. Um, but yeah, so yeah, um, Davis and Bigger didn't seem to figure that out, and that's alarming um, because you need a level of autonomy from your halfbacks. You know, even though rugby is increasingly, you know, increasingly your halfbacks are kind of like management drones rather than. Um, you know, rather than a Phil Bennett type who is necessarily, you know, d- doing whatever they like, yeah. like, you know, playing purely off instinct, just because playing purely off instinct every single phase wouldn't work these days. But yeah, it's a, uh, it, it felt alarming that they didn't have the, what is kind of like Division Seven understanding that, and maybe they're just used to playing in massive stadiums where, where the wind isn't as big a factor, you know, and because, Parker Scarlett is quite open. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they have played plenty there before, Gareth Davis in particular. But yeah, I don't know. Um, that's that's something that you hope is an anomaly and won't continue to bite them. But as you said, that game management was poor and remained quite... It, it remained quite sticking to the book rather than actually thinking, you know, in the way they have in the past. Yeah, I suppose... It's probably easier to put up and unders in on the back foot than it is to mm. kick low, which oh, is yeah. probably been Wales's just problem is they've largely been playing off off back foot back foot ball because they're not really winning collisions yeah. and they're struggling to to keep hold of possession more often than not. Yeah, and 
you know, the the up and under Gary Owens become such a just component part of how teams attack. You look at what the Springboks did last year. If they weren't going forward or if, you know, Faf de Klerk or Pollard felt nothing was building after five phases, they kicked it every single time on phase five or six, um, unless there was kind of like a definitive, we've got momentum, we're going to break these down. Um, and that's kind of become the case across the board. You know, if you've got teams counting five, six phases and then they're kicking. Uh, and like you look at, I've looked at a lot of George Ford, um lately and i mean he's very good at sort of you can see him you know pointing to areas of the pitch and sort of pointing to okay if we forward carry over there if we don't get any purchase there then we'll kick it you know or we'll try two phases in this direction and so on um and just, i think george ford is incredible because he's always sort of playing two or three phases in advance um but that that little bomb has become <laughs> such a core part of kind of resetting you know because the defense yeah. has to realign and on top of that, you know, your attack gets to realign. You essentially get a chance if you win it to play off turnover ball. Um, you gain yardage. And if you lose it because of what we were kind of saying about, you know, as Eddie Jones said, the the laws currently favour the defending team, it's not the end of the world if the opposition have to do it. And actually, England in particular won a lot of penalties off kicking and then following up, you know, sending Curry or Otoje on immediately after the tackler. Um, so, yeah, so it's... It's it's a disproportionately effective tactic this year and last year, I suppose. Um, but people are only beginning to catch on to it last year. Yeah. So I guess moving moving forward then yeah. for twenty twenty one, yeah, it, it's not going to get any easier for Wayne Pivot. You know, the Six Nations um, coming up. We got the three games away from home. Um, I guess you know you could look beyond that as a summer tour and, and an autumn sort of fixtures, which we don't. Fully know. I think they're going to Argentina on tour. I don't think it's been announced, but I'm pretty sure it's Argentina. And then the autumn will be the autumn, you know, Australia in there probably three times and maybe in New Zealand. But it's the Six Nations, isn't it? First and foremost, you know, you think that Pivac's got this break clause this mm. year. Like it doesn't, it doesn't get any easier for him, does it? No, but I, I mean, I suppose the break clause is something else, but the, the problem with the Six Nations is all, but five of the six teams, I think, are... No, I, I'm going to start the sentence all over again. Um, I think Italy definitely improving. I think Scotland is definitely improving. I think England are where they are, and they are so solid and reliable. And, you know, they were the best team in the world in 2020. They're absolutely going to be top three or four. Um, I mean, in the world rather than in the Six Nations. Because, yeah, they'll, they'll probably finish in the top six. Um, and then... France are still improving and they're already pretty good at this point. Yep. Um, which then leaves Ireland, who I don't think are improving, but they're changing. They're trying to add a different side to their game, uh, which is going smoother than Wales. And you kind of leave Wales as the only team you looked at in, in 2020 and said, well, I don't think they're definitely improving. You know, I don't think they're definitely going somewhere new. Um, however, I don't... <laughs> I don't think it was as bad as a lot of people did. You know, I think there were things about those performances that were terrible, but yeah. on the whole, there was an attempt to do something that wasn't quite working. And I think against Italy, we saw one of the tweaks and how they used the back row that will make a huge difference going forward. Um, and I think there are elements of personnel and there are elements of just like other tweaks that can be done that can get things to click. Um, and I wonder if it's a bit like happened with the Scarlets with under Pivac in that it took them kind of two big wins and they just built this momentum, you know, that's kind of 
it's almost like the way they play and it's kind of reliant on getting a couple of big carries and then you begin to break things up and you kind of begin to roll forward and forward and forward um, for almost an infinite number of phases until you eventually crack the line and score. Um, You almost wonder if it's a bit like that metaphorically, that he kind of needs, you know, if he managed to pull off a win over England and Cardiff or, you know, France or whoever, will that be enough? You know, will that kind of trigger the... The, the, everything just slot into place for a while. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't think it's hopeless, but I do think it's a bit of an uphill task and he needs more pieces to slot in place. And he probably, he's been quite, just from kind of the, from post-match interviews and so on, he's been quite defensive of how he's um, approached games and how the, the team approached them tactically. And he's also been quite open to criticising referees rather than, you know, what he's done himself, which wasn't something Gatlin did. You know, Gatlin would often yeah. say, you know, we, we played that wrong or whatever. And um, I I hope he's began to realise or began to look into, so why wasn't this working rather than thinking actually is going to work if we keep going. And the fact that they changed that against Italy, um, as saying they, they got, you know, Tupac and Faladar far more involved than they had them before and used them together um, in system, which isn't the usual thing to do in that kind of, in that system or in the way they've been playing, you know, similarly under the Scarlets or like Australia adopting a very similar system and you know, not what they do at all. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's going to be interesting. And I think there's, <laughs> I think there's a lot that can go right and wrong. Um, I think, I think Pivak is a good enough coach to put it right. Um, but it's, is he going to, or is he going to be kind of, you know, like Gatland was infamously stubborn, but he was stubborn in all the best ways, you know, Um is Pivak going to be the right kinds of stubborn or is he going to going to go in the wrong direction? I think to be an international coach, you have to be, don't you? Because at the end of the day, yeah. if you're not sort of fairly stubborn in your own vision for the team, you just end up listening to the three million selectors yes. out there, don't yeah. you? And then you end up with nothing. But when you say about referees, it's interesting because I remember in the Six Nations in the build to that mm. France game, every week Wales were talking about their scrum and how... They were trying to paint the picture that they were the only team in the Six Nations who were scrummaging legally. Yes. And it just came across as you're protesting your innocence before you even get to the match. And it's like, well, I don't, I don't understand why, because all it takes is one decision to go against you and then suddenly you just look like you're lying, which is what happened. I think there was, Wales' scrum wasn't too bad against France, but from memory at the Prince Valley Stadium, and then there was the quick, quick change of line. Yeah, quick where, yeah, Damba Bamba came on. Damba Bamba and Paul O'Connell said as he came on, he is not a good scrummager and he wins a scrum penalty against the head instantly. Yeah, but it, it wasn't, I think it was necessarily a legal penalty that he no. won, but he just painted an image and the Wales props are a bit tired. They get the penalty and now suddenly mm. Wales just look almost idiotic for all the comments and everything they've done. And even just that constant thing of just holding the ball in the scrum thinking we're going to milk a penalty here when it's it's the riskiest facet of play to do so. Yeah. And you think, had they had they just played from a scrum, but obviously nobody bothers with doing even training <laughs> set moves from scrums yeah. anymore. They, they could have won that match so, so much yeah. easier. But it's just, I don't know, that John Humphreys wants to make the scrum a weapon, but he also wants to sort of have the added pride of it being totally legal, which just seems like yes. a paradox. That, that <laughs> but, isn't how it works. 
that's not that's not how it works. <laughs> it's that there is no such thing as legal scrummaging. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Well, no, there is. It's called bad scrummaging. Exactly. And ironically, you get penalised for it because it looks like you're going backwards and being dominated. And there's little point because at the end of the day, referees mm. don't. I don't want to tar them with a brush, but they don't. They don't fully know what's going on there. No, they they only work on the pitches they're given. So, exactly. you know, you, you should be looking to get every facet. But I think that's just like one example of maybe the idealism that that, that happens. Same with the line out. You know, you look at the line out, and Wales just tend to fluctuate between having a world class line out and one that that just just cannot function. So then this year we've at least for the first part of the year, we've gone, well, the line is going to be a big weapon for us. So we're going to take Tipperick, put him in midfield. He's going to be a sort of first receiver, playmaker that can give a tip on pass to a centre or give a pullback pass to a fly half. So he's the safe ball, but we're taking him out because we want to be ambitious and play off the line out. We're going to have Falatau come in and scrum half. <laughs> and yet, yeah. it just doesn't function as, a, as, as, as like a basic entity. And it's like, you got all these bells and whistles on top, and yet you can't hit hit a man with with a with a lineout. Yeah, and I again, I think part of that is systematic, and I don't know if they changed all the calls when Pivac came in, um, and yeah, the complete coaching re uh, overhaul. Um, so, because it was an issue early on, the Six Nations and remained it later on. So yeah. you think surely they can sort it out by then? Um, I think part of the problem is Will Rowland is not really a line-out operator. Um, I don't know why someone looked at that Wasps team that played in the Premiership final. They had a line-out five metres out and they didn't jump. I don't know why they went, yeah, let's get the guy that called their line-out in to to run hours. He can call our line-outs as well. Um, I don't know why someone thought that was a good idea. I think he's a solid player. I think he's excellent whenever he's there for Wasps, but he, he hasn't really shone it for Wales showing it for Wales so far. Um, but I just, I don't, I don't think he's that useful a line-out player to say he is massive. Um, and Jake Bull obviously is kind of, you know, is the, the classic kind of heavier enforcer, tight headlock, um, you know, like probably limited in his athletic abilities in the air, um, but still a very solid option. But he's an option rather than kind of a guy who bosses it. Uh, in the way kind of Adam Beard was a little bit for Gatland. That's kind of why he was so successful, was he was such a good nuts and bolts player. Um, and I was very surprised he wasn't in the Autumn squad, considering he's been playing well for the Ospreys. So I think part of that is going to be, considering, you know, the, the second row is going to be like Derwin Jones and Greg Davis, um, or, you know, whoever just the tallest two people yeah. that qualified are, now that we've we've likely lost Ball and Alwyn Jones for at least the start of the Six Nations. Um you continue to worry about the line out, but um, but it's it's one of those things that is ninety percent of the time in the team's own hands, you yeah. know, which is why there's no excuse for it going so badly unless you're playing as like a Victor Matfield who is completely dominant. Um, there's almost no excuse to get it that wrong. So like it, again, in, Dub- in Dublin, they they got up, they just got baited, didn't they? Like mm. I think Ireland were were put in. <laughs> Wales want to be really ambitious with their lineup, which is mm. commendable, but it's also it's worrying when you feel that then the lineup has to function really well for Wales to be effective 
yes. as a whole in the game plan. Like it feels like Pivac's game plan is built to succeed on always throwing to the tail and always having off the top ball that hits midfield hard and, and gets mm. you a, a good carry. So then Ireland can just sit there with Tyke Byrne and Peter Armani as two parts at the back, leave the front completely open, knowing that Wales are probably just going to take their chances on yeah. going up yeah. again to double that pod, which they did, and they lost it. When they could have just gone to the and front. At this level, at top-end international level, even if Ireland don't steal the ball, the time that's lost in Wales needing to secure the ball a bit more than being disrupted by, as you said, Omani or Burn or whoever, just just getting there and just annoying them in the air, even just getting in their eye line, causes them to lose half a second, which is half yeah. a second it takes for a defence to get up in their face, which is, you know, like two yards, three yards lost on a big carry in midfield, which is momentum lost for the entire, entire attack, you know. Suddenly Wales can't get anything going just because Peter Armani is really annoying and kind of just, as I say, was able to hedge his bets and get up in the end, get in the player's eye line. So it has a disproportionate knock-on effect, but also that's why you do it. You know, that's that's part of it. Part yeah. of it is just trying to get those kind of one or two percent that add up and have a huge knock-on effect. I think in the Italy game, from memory, they mm. did manage to find a way of going to the front of the line out and still working off the top and, and getting into midfield, which again does show that there is some semblance of problem solving that we've seen with, with mm. sort of the back row because Falatau was a passenger sort of early on, wasn't he? Because they, they wanted to use him as one of the wide bodies mm-hmm. in, in sort of the forward pods, but they brought him together with Tiprick and, and that, that's probably, that's probably the biggest glimpse we saw in the autumn of what, maybe what Wales can do Yeah, in the Six Nations was basically how, how they got their, their back row to combine. And it's one of those things that people will look at that and go, oh, it's only Italy. Um, even if it was a you know very good Italy team who really pushed Wales, but I think there were genuine changes in how Wales approached that game, um, and there were actual differences to the way they played that are far more encouraging um, and do suggest things. M- <laughs> I'm not going to say definitely are, but it might be different. Yeah, there's a there's a chance that they might play um, better and more differently in a way that better suits the 15 best players that we have. You know. Um, because it's a bit, I, I often think about this, that the coaching club in international rugby is so different that in club rugby, you kind of need to come in with a idea, you know, philosophy with a game plan. Um, and you can then sign players to make that yeah. work, you know, and it's far more about you. Whereas in international rugby, firstly, you've got to think about the opposition, you know, and you kind of see far more adapting to who you're playing. Um but also you're only given a set pool of players and you have to choose from them, you know? And if you want to change something, you've got to change a player fundamentally. You've got to kind of change who they are, which you can't do in a week. So Pivac hasn't been given the players he needed to play either of the ways he kind of did with the Scarlets, either of the ways he wanted. So Wales don't have, you know, Hadley Parks a little bit, but he's gone now. They didn't really have the proper smashy, smashy ball carry to do that yeah. first phase carry. Um, nor are they, despite what everyone says, they don't really have the end the supply of sevens that can, you know, the Scots were using, they had turnover threats in almost every position and they played so much off turnover. Um, and Wales haven't really had that either, and partly just because ball retention has been, you know, so good um, at international rugby, really. So, yeah, so it's, uh, it, it's, it's been a 
tricky thing to deal with. I've completely lost where the sentence was going, um, but there's a few points in there. Yeah. Thank you very much. Good night. Well, that's the end of the podcast. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I know what you mean. It's just, you, you do feel, uh, and you can, I, I think Pivak's tried to distance himself from from blaming it on, on sort of not having bodies because he sort of said, well, mm. when do you ever have everyone fit? Yeah. But yeah, I think up until Johnny Williams came along, it looked like inside centre was going to be a sort of, okay, Hadley Parks is gone. And, you know, Parks was, to me, a sort of, I don't want to say a more evolved Jamie Roberts, because that sort of mm. <laughs> completely discredits what Jamie Roberts did in 94 caps. <laughs> but he was slightly different in the sense that I felt he he always, he just found weak shoulders. Mm. And he, he sort of stepped, he stepped through tackles a little bit more. He used his footwork a bit more than maybe Jamie Roberts did which I think probably yeah. helped him sort of get momentum with with sort of less bulk and com- compared to Roberts. He picked that kind of out-to-win line really nicely. Oh, that's that Scotland, that Scotland game at Murrayfield. Oh, he man. Just, he just yeah. hit so many out-to-win lines, which is ridiculous. And but, the, uh, there was a thing he used to do where you'd have kind of a pod of free forwards or whatever in the middle, Um and the 10 would be, you know, selecting which those pass to. And he'd just come on an angle between them. Yeah. Um, and you had no way of spotting him. You know, he's very good at just hiding himself behind other Welsh players or other Scarlet's players or, you know, other uh, Centauri, Sun, Sun Goliath players now. Um, no, that's that's not where he is, is it? He's a... Whichever... Panasonic Wild Knights, isn't it? He is. is it? He's at the Panasonic Wild Knights, yes. Thank you. Um, thank you, yeah. Bowden Barrett's at Sun Goliath. They played at the weekend. Um two two players of equal excellence um and yeah but parks was so good at just hiding himself it was kind of the science of a crash ball he was really into yeah no he was fantastic and then you think back row i mean yeah they, they probably missed some sevens they've also just, they just missed a balance really i think yeah navidi's not be navidi's been missing which to me is the biggest loss yes I was amazed to see how far back on the Lions betting odds Navidi is. Really? He's he's really far back. I think, you know, the problem is you get all like the the Gallagher Premiership sort of yeah. trendy players. So like Willis and, and Barbary and all these players who, yeah, are playing well, but <laughs> if you're telling me Gallagher's not thinking well, I know I know exactly what Josh Navidi yeah. can do. And I, it's basically loves- anchor, anchor a back row. Exactly. Gatlin loves utility players, utility forwards, you know. So he will take one. He always takes one in every squad, uh, which is how James King has so many caps. Uh, by so many, I mean like six, which is more than I'll ever have. Um, by six. Um, but Five. Don't knock yourself down. <laughs> one day, one day, I, like Will Harris, will sneak into a Barbos game, like Adam Warren. Um, and I love Will Harris. He was, what a wonderful player. I can't remember recording when we started talking about Will Harris, but... Um, we weren't recording when we were speaking we about were recording, pre-podcast. We, pre-podcast, we talked about Will Harris for about four hours, I think. Yeah, um, it's 10.52 now, and yeah. I think we started at 5 a.m. Yeah, and I got up specially to talk about Will Harris, yeah. uh, and a little bit about Richard Fussell, um, but mostly Will Harris. Oh, yeah. Man, what a player Richard Fussell was. He that's that's a nice tangent, that is. Players yeah. who were at the Dragons. And you sort of think, yeah, they're, they're decent, but you know, but you don't think of them as anything more than dragons. And then they go to another region. Yeah. And and they, they it's like Dan, like Dan Evans. 
Yeah. That's just like gone on to like completely forge a, like a, a great regional career for himself. Yeah. Richard Fossil. Um, just so many. And it's just, yeah. Oh, I mean, I Sam Parry. Yeah. Um, I'm sure Joe there's Beerman. loads more. Joe, <laughs> Joe Beerman. But see, Joe to this Beerman's- day, I maintain kick the ball backwards in a match. And I can't find the footage, but I remember <laughs> it. He he caught the ball in the backfield, and for some mm. reason he thought, I'm going to do a kick past the opposite wing here. And he just scuffed it. I think it was yes. Barbara Scarlett. Yes, no, I do remember that. Was it? It was like a Christmas time game. I think it was a derby. I'm making that was, up. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was a Parker Scarlet's. Maybe at Ronnie. I can't remember what Ronnie Parade. Yeah, no, that rings a bell. But he, he kicked it backwards. Yeah, I remember Andy Powell going for a drop goal once. That's that's never left me. Um, oh. In Cardiff City Stadium, Andy Powell once went for a drop. He was in wow. the backfield and he went for a drop goal. Um, yeah, I remember, I remember um, him running sideways into touch in Italy. He hands someone off and he just keeps going sideways. Then he just gets the touchline and realises. <laughs> There's a long list of times he did that. It's probably the same game that he got fired up in the change room at half time and then walked mm. into the closet because he thought that's how he got out onto the pitch. So then he had to like oh. sheepishly walk back <laughs> out of the broom closet. <laughs> I hadn't. That's the, there are so many that's the most Andy Powell story I've ever heard stories. But that's yeah. the most Andy Powell <laughs> sober story I've ever heard. It's the tiredest trophy in Welsh rugby. Never get beyond Powley. You know, like oh. I once met someone who once drove past and saw him eating like a really cheap pizza off a bin. Wow. And I thought, yes, that is the most Andy Powell story I've ever heard. But also he once drove a golf buggy down the M4 and you go, that is the most Andy Powell story I've ever heard. They just, they build up, they build up. Um, where were we? Richard Fussell. Should we talk about Richard Fussell for another hour? Yeah, Richard Fussell. Great. What a player. Great player. Like, uh, people didn't really realise what an all-time great they had in Richard Fussell. Um, and he he went from being one of the most solid, entertaining wingers at the Dragons, the, you know, the, the Dragons have had, aside from War Harry's, um, to being one of the most solid, entertaining wingers at the Ospreys, to being the greatest fullback of all time. Yeah. Yeah, he was just, he was just a bold Christian Cullen. That was how I saw him. That is so on the money it hurts. <laughs> um, I can't remember what we were talking about before. Oh, yeah, just sort of, yeah, players fitting fit yeah. into Wales. Yeah, it'd be fine. It'll all work out for Wales. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, okay, but the thing with the break clause, because I guess we mentioned that at some point. Yeah. Um, and I know once the Six Nations starts, that's going to get a lot of talk and a lot of people are going to start talking about it all the time. It's going to be quite a a, a heavy topic on Twitter well, on kind of covering and everything. I think Scott Robertson's already got the job, according to, according to sort of the in the know on Twitter. Mm. The people who, who've got a mate who like works in Cardiff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's enough to tell you. <laughs> My yeah, mate designed the WU uh, top trump cards. So <laughs> he says that actually <laughs> Samson Lee's going to be head coach. Yeah, like he, he, he works down by the principality in the BT building yeah. and he walks past Stadium all the time and he swears he's seen Razor, <laughs> Razor <laughs> Robertson like walking in and out of the stadium. <laughs> just last week, just last week, I popped into St. David's, who should I see there? But Pat Lamb, wearing a big badge that said, interviewing today. 
Patrick. Out loud, we're going around the WRU store in loads of bags. <laughs> weird. He, he just came out like he'd weirdly, for whatever reason, he'd taken the big sign with a picture of Eleanor Snowsill. Like he'd just taken it with him and they wouldn't give that to someone who wasn't the new Wales coach. No. No, they wouldn't. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of talk of that, but Wales won't find a better coach who isn't out of, who is out of contract yeah. than than that. You can argue for Die Young, but whatever. Um, they won't find a better coach than Pivac. Die Young, Dai um, not the next Wales coach. No, he's not. Um, unless he is, but you know that's the only oh, option. <laughs> the only option we have because you know the spring. Everyone, now brings up the spring box of yes you can win it in two years but you need Razzy Erasmus you know and they had one of the best coaches in the world who was willing to tear up his contract to come back to the spring box because he cared that passionately about them right there isn't a coach of that quality who cares about Wales in that way um, yeah. and so the union would need an absurd amount of money to buy whoever it is out of the contract which like, they don't have <laughs> which they especially post-COVID they don't have um, like Pat Lamb who again has come up before because there's a quote that got circulated again a couple of weeks ago where he said he'd love to coach Wales because yeah. he kind of loves the passion whatever um, and yeah grand but he isn't doing that till Bristol won Europe um, like he isn't doing that till A, he's finished that project and B, you saw how emotional he was when he left Connor. You know, he, he likes to see a job through to its conclusion. He doesn't, he's not a careerist, you know, he's not going, I'm going to, you know, rebuild the next big team and make them contenders, make them win the league. He, he likes building kind of that family team. Um, and he won't leave until he kind of has to, or until someone comes with a big enough offer. And considering the amount of money he's on, I think it's close to like 800,000, apparently, reportedly. Um, the, the union aren't buying him out of his contract because I'm, no. I'm pretty sure that'll be more than P- I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm randomly speculating. I'm going to guess that's more than PVAC's on. Um, but yeah, we can't know. Um, but they're not getting him out of his contract. And even then, I don't think it would necessarily work because Pat Lamb's system at both Connacht and Bristol has been reliant on him signing certain players. And Bristol weren't ideal. They weren't playing the way they are now in his first season under him because he didn't have the component parts yet. You know, and so it took him spending an absurd amount of money on Nathan Hughes because he's a big carrier who can offload, which he needs, you know. Um, and, you know, whereas also, I don't know if anyone's noticed this, don't have Semi Randrandra. Um, that's that's not a player no. available to them. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think, yeah, I, I can't see the sense in firing Pivac midway through a World Cup cycle. You know, it's the equivalent of firing a mid-season. Um, and you'd be doing it as a knee-jerk thing rather than because it's a good idea, is my yeah. is my take on it. And you know, there's every chance during the Six Nations he just sets Josh Adams on fire, um, and in which case, yeah, let, yeah, let him go. You know, if he yeah. he actually commits bodily harm to a player, um, or maybe he says in in a press conference that um, I don't know, he he plans on stealing the picture of Ellen Snowsill from the WAU shop. Um, and there's nothing you can do about me because I've gone power mad. Um, it's Glenn or whatever it levels is. of... Yeah. <laughs> oh, unstoppable, unstoppable. Um, I don't know, but I can't, I can't see no. the, the sense in Pubak. Plus they, they, they've, they've, you know, they've, they've dispensed with one coach in Byron Hayward. Mm. Um, yeah. Which, you know, was, was pretty brutal the way they sort of, what was that, after the... Scotland game. 
God, it was after the Scotland game, wasn't it? It was literally yeah. two games into the autumn. And that was pretty tough. I think it was on a rest weekend, wasn't it? It wasn't even... Yeah. <laughs> oh. um, it'd be interesting. I don't know what's going on with that now. I'm not really... Obviously, they got rid of Byron Hayward. Gethin had already come in, come in to basically take over Sam's role as mm. breakdown consultant, defence. It was just sort of said, "Oh yeah, we'll just we'll muddle through, and everyone will contribute." And then nothing more has been. I don't know whether Wales are actually searching for a new defence coach or if Gethin's just going to sort of step up. No, because it'd be interesting if they went out and thought, "Okay, well, let's find basically." A, rug, a rugby league back, you know, background defense mm. coach. You're not going to get another Sean Edwards, but you can basically get someone who's, you know, just knows rugby league defense. Yeah, that could, yeah. that could possibly go such a long way just to improving. Yeah, so I think I think you saw that the defense did did improve because I think they simplified things. Because that was another thing where I think Wales were more ambitious than they should have been was Byron's defense. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I think, think they also started competing at the breakdown in the autumn once Gethin took over um, in the way they weren't. And I remember reading Hadley Parker's column where he said they were being actively told to stand off breakdowns. And when you watch the two side by side, it is so obvious, you know, because yeah. the opposite, like, yes, <laughs> the logic of it is you get a fuller line, you can press more aggressively, but the opposition have quicker ball, you know, yeah. which is, is it a trade-off worth taking? Um, personally, from my own philosophy as a world-class defence coach, I don't think it is. Um, but again, it's up to the individual defence coach and how effectively you can make it work. And as you say, it was biting off more than they can chew. It was too ambitious. Yeah, and it just, it just seemed to affect the sort of... Because they weren't competing at the break, you think to that Ireland game in Dublin, mm. the first one, they, they weren't competing at the breakdown. As such, Ireland are working off quick ball. Ireland, I think, caught them on the hop because Ireland started just going touchline to touchline, which Ireland don't yeah. do. So that caught them off guard. And then suddenly you've got your spacings all wrong. Just just the way they set up in the line was really unorganised. You had sort mm. of, you know, props and stuff were just sort of defending two or three out from, you know, and, and like you had backs as guards. And it just, just the space, the spacings, everything was just a bit chaotic. And I think that just came down to, they put, they probably put too many, too much decision making in the players' hands, and then just the, the instructions were too convoluted. It didn't, know, it didn't yeah. feel like they knew where they were going to blitz or drift, and so they, they, yeah, they yeah. did both. Yeah. So that I think that's something that Wales have probably improved on as the years gone on, obviously since Byron's gone. Um, so I'm interested to see what they do with that. Um, but yeah, it's it's going to be uh, an interesting 2021 with all these sort of areas to, to work on. Yeah. Um, and I said, there's a lot to work on. I don't think anything is fundamentally broken, but there's an awful lot that takes a lot of fixing. Yeah. I think, I think I can't remember whether it was Pivak or whether it was some other coach who, who sort of said, you know, the, the thing with coaching is you, you notice one thing goes wrong in a game and you spend all week fixing that. And then the next game yeah. comes along and something else is wrong. Yeah. Probably Wales at the minute is, there's more than one hole in the bucket, so they're yes. trying to sort yeah. of. It's, it's it's what they want to what they want to focus time on. Um, and it was like the the thing with that Dublin game, the Dublin game in the autumn. Um, I wasn't that worried about the lineup because the lineup you can fix easily in a week, you know. Yeah. Um, but the problem becomes, as you say, if everything else is broken, the lineup becomes either a lesser priority 
or you're spending less time trying to fix it. Um, so as you say, once you've got several, either you end up fixing half of the hole, in which case it's still a hole. We've all heard those riddles. Um, or you've still got another hole in the bucket. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hugely problematic and you only have so much time with these players as an international coach. Yeah, I think that's... I think that was just the, the, the biggest thing with the autumn was because I think the Six Nations, okay, they lost three on the banks, but you could at least see, mm. well, like, you know, Dublin, they Dublin they didn't fire too many shots, but the, yeah. the, the shot they did fire was like, to me, it was the purest we've seen of Wayne Pivak's game plan. Yeah, absolutely. It was, just like the, the, it was like 11 phases, inside balls, Dan Bigger taking it flat to the line with options in and out, and then one, two passes with forwards to break down the line. Yeah. Um, France, I mean, France were good that day, but Wales so easily could have won that. Yeah, you know, there they, were two or three moments where things went awry. You know, I think they got, if Untermac misses that interception yeah. and Tompkins throws it out, that's a very, you know, Untermac is one of two defenders they have in the backfield and Wales had two men over plus Tompkins following back up. Yeah, There's a strong chance that's a try and that's think- a 14-point turnaround. And Wales had literally just scored to get themselves back in the game after yeah. that. And then, you know, you, towards the end, I think Tompkins makes a break, gets isolated. England, yeah. I, the scoreline was close. Wales weren't really in that. No. But again, it's a game of Twickenham against England. How often under, since Eddie Jones has come in was Gatlin never really in a game against England? Probably only 2018 when Anson had the try chalked off and 2019 when we won uh, the World Cup yeah. warm-ups, which... Uh, you know, we, we played two full-strength teams in the warm-ups. It got battered in one and then beat them in the other. So, like, you know, Gatlin never had Eddie Jones's number as Wales coach. I don't think, you know, Pivak not having it isn't the end of the world, no. as, as some people probably have you believe. So the Six Nations, I thought, was, you know, promising when you take into to account the level was always going to drop. Yes. So Gatlin had spent two years basically priming this team to peak at this point. Yeah. Um, and things have been pretty mediocre before those two years. I mean, 2016, 2017 was just pretty much pretty mediocre for Wales until yeah. they sort of started looking towards the World Cup. So the drop-off was always going to happen. But the autumn, just because of lockdown, because of the how long it it was and how it felt we regressed. And then, weirdly, I think the World Cup seedings hindered us mm. because it gave, it probably gave Pivak more freedom than he needed. And, and, and then suddenly it's about capping people and, and you know, every player in the squad is oh, going to get yeah, a chance. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then you get to the end of the autumn and, okay, you can say that, you know, people have got their chance. But in terms of coherent game plan and consistency, it, it almost felt like a lost autumn. yeah. And there's, I mean, there is that point of holding things back, you know, and I think we kind of know, like, Eddie Jones is definitely holding ideas he's got back, both for, you know, like, post-Lions tour and for the World Cup, likely. He's probably got things in his pocket that he's going to pull out in a few years' time. Um, Partly because Eddie Jones is clearly just very bored and just wants another crack at the World Cup, and he doesn't really want to do the four years he had to do leading into it. Um, But... Whereas I wonder if P-Rex got that, you know, I won and I worry a bit about the break clause may cause him to, to overshoot and to change things rather than yeah. building. 
Um, and you know, we want to see Wales win. We want to see we want to see that. Um, but you don't want it to be at the expense of a longer game in that way Ireland did, you know, in that they kind of Smith had a great game plan. He had everything that worked. He had the team in peak condition. Yeah. Um, and then he fired his shot thinking this would be great. You know, we've got a whole year of being dominant and then that lead into the World Cup. And turns out it only took people five or six games to work out what was going on. And then both Eddie Jones and Gatland came along and went, now we're going we're gonna to just tear you apart in two different ways. Uh, and by the time the World Cup rolled around, even though I looked in a really good place for kind of five games to go, by the time it rolled around, like the likes of Japan and the likes of the All Blacks had two really clear-cut blueprints for what to do to beat them. And Ireland hadn't evolved from there. Um, so I'll I don't know, there's that. a... Hmm? If Wales do what Ireland did in the last World Cup cycle, I guarantee you <laughs> that's true. That's every true. every Welsh fan would be delighted. We're like, oh yeah, go out in the quarters, but if we beat the All Blacks twice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. A grand slam and beating the All Blacks would would do it. That'd be all right. I'd be okay with that. And you know, wins we'll away out, in Australia. Group, we'll go out in the group stages again. Uh, we'll lose to Fiji. I don't care. <laughs> again, that, that becomes a separate thing. Of you know, like I know I am now very maybe because. Gatlin was so clearly so focused on last year's World Cup, or year before his World Cup now. Wow, time. Um, that it's kind of become my prerogative, you know? Yeah. Um, and I spent so much time in 2019 just thinking, what if Wales did win the World Cup? Because I felt it was very possible. Um, and I will be thinking about that for so long that I kind of can't just go, oh, you know, we, we, yeah, we beat Australia. Um, Enough. It was like, yeah, but are we going to do it in the group stages? Are we going to do it in the knockouts? Are yeah. we going to actually win the World Cup? And I don't know if Wales did win the World Cup. I'd probably be just going, you know, I'd be like always chasing the next high. It'd be a one of those horrible prophecies where people just get trapped in it. Um, this is becoming my own personal mental hell. Sorry, I've just gone on a on a difficult tangent. Well, and I don't know where it's going. Um, I'm going to have a lie down and think about Richard Fussell after this. No, I would hope so. Um, let, let's sort of finish up on Pilatch <laughs> Wales quick. So I think we've got others okay. to talk about this podcast. <laughs> okay. But just where do you think, where do you think they're going to finish in the Six Nations and what do you mm. think 2021 is going to hold for Wales in terms of, I guess, tangible results or improvements? I don't think it will be as bad as it was last year. Um <sighs> <laughs> I say that, but I can see Wales losing to Italy. But I think that'll be more about Italy than Wales um, because I think Italy are in a really interesting place. Um, and they're kind of weirdly the team I look forward to watching most out of the Six Nations because they're the team that is improving the quickest and is changing the most. Um, and what they're doing is really, really interesting. Um, but um, I, I can see Wales losing to, to Italy, but I've also got a feeling they're going to pull off, you know, they've got... Um, Ireland and they've got England at home. Yeah. Um, I can see Wales winning one of those two games um, and it being kind of a spectacular show of just how PVAC's game plan can work or that Wales have kind of front of them and they've still got some of the kind of Gatlin grit. Um, that's my instinct that that'll happen and I can see them maybe just pulling away from Italy. Um, Scotland's a big question mark. Scotland's a problem. Um, yeah. But there we go. Um, where they'll finish in the Six Nations is difficult to say. I feel like it's going to be fourth or fifth again. Um, uh, yeah, and it's going to be it's going to be there or thereabouts. I'm Sam Warburton, and you're listening to the Welsh Rugby Podcast. What else have we got this year? Potentially a Lions tour. Mm. Um, 
home or away. We don't know, to be honest. 2022, it could be. Or any other round on question of sport. Like, yeah, could, could that's be. all we know. Like they're just going to put C. Khaleesi and <laughs> Owen Farrell on what question of sports. What happens yeah. next? <laughs> and they're just going to just going to have them pick out from the picture rounds. I mean, in terms of Welsh tourists, <laughs> it feels like there's a lot of negativity. <laughs> um. Hey, Justin Tipperick. Yeah. Yep, he's going to have to make some new friends. Um, um, but that's that's good for him, you know. It'll be, it'll be a good learning experience for him. Like every other week, it's basically some columnists coming out with this, what they think is this remarkable hot take that Alan Wynne-Jones mm. might not start the test series. Yes. Which is like, yeah. well, yeah, he's 35 and you have got Maratoji and James Ryan. It's not, it's not, the, not the biggest surprise in the world, but I think, I think there's a lot, a lot of concern that there isn't going to be too much Welsh representation, apart from mm. in Scotland, where they think it's going to be Wales and Finn yes. Russell's not going to tour. Who, who do you sort of see being the the bolters? Oh, um, I mean, there's like knowing Warren Gatland, he will love Luke Cowan Dickey. So yeah. I have him; he's kind of nailed on. He's absolutely going uh, on the Alan Wynn thing. I don't think there's a second. I think Ryan the Toes you have to start, but I don't think there's another second row who is good enough to justify not putting the most cap player of all time on the bench. You know, I think what Alan Wynn can bring off the bench is, is beyond anyone else. Yeah. Um, so I think he, he has to tour at least. Um, uh, I think it will be silly not to, but I think Gatlin is stubborn enough and he likes to make those kind of big shot calls that he might not take him almost for that reason. Um, in terms of bolters, um, you know, Johan Lloyd's nailed on. Um, no, he's, he's, he's very much not. Um, I don't know if there's going to be much room for bolters because there's so many players who have legitimate calls for a test jersey. Yeah. You, know, you could probably set, you know, like I, Ali Price wouldn't have been in the conversation a few years ago, but I think he's he'd very much deserve a shot now. I think he's playing like the best rugby of his career this last year, though the most, um, the most sensible um, while still keeping that flair. Um, I think there's way too many options in the back three to be leaving anyone now. You know, you're kind of looking at once Josh Adams goes, Johnny May goes, uh, and then you've kind of got, you know, Elliot Daly, Jack Nowell, Anthony Watson probably have to go. Stuart Hogg has to go. Lee Halfpenny's on good enough form that he he deserved to go. Yeah. Uh, Liam Williams is, you know, very good. And I, think, I think he's vital to how Gatlin wants to play against South Africa as well. Mm. I, think, I think his back three is going to be someone like Watson... Liam Williams and maybe uh, Josh Adams on the wing or maybe Hogg at fullback, Liam on the yeah. wing. So I think basically, basically Gatlin's going to go there and just kick the leather off the ball and, and put it in the air and compete, which is what he did in the semi-final and nearly beat yeah. them. Yeah, exactly. And I think Mike. everyone's everyone sort of looked at Wales against South Africa in the semi-final, um, mainly English fans and thought, oh, well, South Africa aren't very good because they nearly got beat by that that Wales team that was That's, sort of on their last legs. And what it was actually was just Gatland played it to perfection. Yeah, absolutely. And then England went and played their own game and, and got hammered. Yeah, it's something that drives him mad because I think that Wales were the most tactically astute team in that tournament. Um, and it's why they came so close. And it's why I think they would have beaten England in the final if they'd won it. Um, or I think they would have beaten the All Blacks in the semi-final the other way around, um, if the draw had been done the other way around. So... I, again, like I'm kind of preaching the converted because it is the Wales Online podcast, but 
I I think I yeah I it people weren't seeing what Wales were doing or what the Springboks were doing in that game you know and it was the yeah. most evenly matched game and such a high it was probably a higher intensity game than the final um it was possibly the most high intensity game I saw in that kind of four year period. So yeah, it was incredible. And today yeah, there's a strong chance that's what happens. And that's why I think Josh Adams had to start because he's the, he is the, the, the best kind of component parts winger in the world. You know, yeah. uh, he's an incredible finisher. He chases kicks as well as anyone else. Defensively, he's as good as anyone. Um, I don't think there's, an all-round winger, if you leave out kind of like the flair component, which you probably put Johnny May on the other wing to kind of make up for it, now that he's solid enough, he can do it. Um, I don't think there's a winger better than Josh Adams uh, at anything, really, you know? But there's people better than... No, there's people better at individual things, but there's no one better at everything than him. He's the best well-rounded winger out there. Speaking of Josh, <coughs> feels like everyone's talking about Josh Adams as though he's fallen off a cliff in the last year. Yeah. And yet, to me, I still think he's been... Okay, he's not scoring as many tries as he did mm. the year before, but he's just still consistently good. Even even in quiet games, he's just he'll yeah. have just a, a good quiet game under the radar. And, and you know, you can talk about was, some someone like George North. I think you notice yeah. it more when he's not yeah. on form. I feel like he doesn't. It's not fair to say he goes missing, but I just think you. It's more peaks and troughs with North. You, you yes. like you you notice him because just because the way he is. So then when, yeah. like on Friday night, when he has a good game, you're like, oh, wow, okay. You, you notice North when he's really good. Mm. In the, so you, you sort of just notice when he's there and when he's not there. Whereas Adams, I just think he just, because he's just, he's always just, just coming on the passes, looking for the ball. You know, he's taking hostile passes and making yards. He's, he's beating men. He, he's solid in defence. And even if he's not scoring a try, you just think, well, he's, he's actually done a good shift tonight. So I, I just find it weird that everyone's sort of speaking about him like he's, had a bit of a, an off year. Someone messaged me saying, "Got after another Josh Adams disaster piece at the weekend, um, you know, do you still stand by him being the best ring in the world? Um, I was like, he's made a free, and he kept using the word disaster piece in a row. I was like, no, actually, watch him back. He's been really good. Like, he was really good against Scotland in the autumn. Um, yeah. And he does, there's not a situation in which you can watch Josh Adams and go, he could have possibly done more, you know? Um, he goes beyond he is basically a perfect winger for what the role of a winger is at the minute um and i love josh adams and i rate him enormously highly and you look at how creative he is at the blues as well you know like those first few games after lockdown when he was popping up and creating tries and pointing through that little grubber um you know for the other wings to score and he's he's versatile he does everything uh i love josh adams and i think he i think he he's one of the the worst players i think has to be in the team uh, the other one I think is like, it's a strong line. My one strongest line's opinion um, is Falatau starts because it would be stupid to think you're going to dominate that Springbok pack. Yeah. Um, and he is the best in the world on bad ball uh, at number eight. Um, and also you look at the worst games of Billy or the least effective games of Billy Vinopola's career over the last five years they're all either against the Springboks or Josh Navidi. Um, and so you're coming up against one of those two. Um, even if the tour's called off, I imagine they would just put the Lions back against Josh Navidi alone um, and see how that goes. Um, it's a problem if he gets injured, but otherwise it'd be a great game of rugby. Oh, it'd be fantastic. Um, let's touch quickly then upon 
the regions. How do you see 2021 okay. going for the regions? Um, hopefully just not that eventful in terms of let's, let's merge them all together and let's cut one. Uh, in terms of, obviously you're an Ospreys fan. Yes. It feels like they've turned a corner. <laughs> yeah. If you think, think back to where we were this time last oh. year. And it was basically emergency meetings and <laughs> people being in press conferences to sort of deal with things. Oh, they, I mean, I don't know. We, we met briefly at the day after Alan Clark had got fired when they sent. He hadn't um, officially got fired. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he, he wasn't there and he wasn't the coach, but yeah, he was still on board as like, like he sorted the squash. For joint training no, no statement had been put out to say that he'd been fired, but he had been fired. Yeah. And then Hookie and Richie Pugh turned up to do the press. Yeah. Oh, and then someone at the Pro 14, because I was doing stuff for the official Pro 14 that day. Um, for whatever reason, they thought I was a good fit. And they then discovered that I'd had like a Twitter conversation with James Hook like two weeks earlier. Uh, I said something about the Ospreys being rubbish. And I mentioned Hook, you know, and I hadn't tagged him or anything, um, but I'd, I'd mentioned Hook had a bad game, you know, like he threw a pass into touch or something. Um, and James Hook then replied and called me out on it. And I was a bit like, fair enough, whatever. Uh, and then the Pro Bowl team people reminded him of it directly before I interviewed him. And that the other guy they had in, like, brought it up and was like, we're going to, we're going to play on this because it avoids us talking about the Osprey situation. So instead I had this awkward 20 minutes with like one of my favorite players when I was a kid, uh, which in fairness was entirely on me. You know, I, I take full responsibility for that, but what a fun day that was. What a fun afternoon that was. Um, yeah. Arguing with James Hook. He referred to me as my troll. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I do have print on business cards. Uh, what was the question about the region, the Ospreys? Yeah. Um, no, as you say, they, they have turned a proper corner. They've come from not looking like a rugby team. Like they were yeah. safely, I think, <laughs> amongst the worst I've ever seen a professional team look, you know, like a top tier team. Um, like they were, they were worse than Leicester were at that point, which is saying something. Um, I haven't seen a team in the top flight look as bad as that, you know, like no. Zebra and so on all look more like teams. Um, and in fact, you know, finish above the Ospreys. Or were above, yeah. I remember there was a point about this time last year where the Ospreys were had won the fewest and had the worst overall results of any team in a top league in Europe. You know, across the Premiership top fourteen, Pro fourteen. Yeah. Um, and now, not only are they winning games again um, and are remaining competitive in games, they have a sense of identity about them, yeah. which is something I don't really think many of the regions do. The Scarlets don't really at the minute in the way they did in the PVAC and the PVAC. You kind of knew they were this exciting running team who still kicked a lot. Um, whereas the Blues don't really, and the Dragons are kind of always scrappy underdogs. Yeah. But I couldn't really talk to you about their style of play beyond that, uh, beyond the fact that they're, they're scrappy and they're do-gooders and whatever, go-getters. Um, whereas the Ospreys, you go, okay, they've got a very good maul. They've got a goal kicker who kicks like 95% of his goals. Um, they use those. They try and use the scrum as a weapon. Sometimes it works and they're happy to abandon it if it isn't. Um, and then they've got a couple of threats out wide that they're happy to use, you know. Um, they're, I can, I can talk you through the Ospreys. Old, can, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Like, it, it just feels, feels very like, classic. It's like, we, we've got a better pack than you and today it's going to be tough for you, which is basically what the Ospreys were for. Yeah, you could talk about the Galacticos, but at the end of the day, that Ospreys team was just, we, we, we're stronger than any of the other regions. And, yeah. and they, they, they used to show that on Derby, like they put 40 points on the Scarlets and they'd be like, well, yeah. 
if you want to run it out your own half, that's fine. But, <laughs> you know, we're going to win every collision, so you're going to have a long exactly. day ahead of you. It was that kind of, it's it's a pack with really good wingers, you know, in the way that team was. It yeah. was it was a great pack, and then you chuck it out to Shane or Tommy Bow, and they yeah. score. In the way now you've got North, you've got Prothero, you've got... Um, it's a, it's you know, Russell, But Luke Morgan, yeah. Exactly, yeah. It's Luke Morgan, but instead of a drop goal, it's George North. And North looks like he's enjoying his rugby again, which is Massively such so. a delight. It it makes me so happy to see. You know, like he was smiling, and even when like he had that try chalked off, um, but as he crossed the line, he was still grinning and still looked like he was enjoying it in the way that happened in that first game against Italy. He had to try to dislike, and he looked so annoyed. He looked so upset. Yeah. Um, and it's just those little things. You can tell in his body language, he's enjoying his rugby, and he plays his best rugby when he's happy. Because the bit that, that struck me was when they did, they had a line out in their own 22 the other night mm. and they go off the top into Myler and then Myler just switches it back to the blind side of the pass and just north yes. breaks down the hooker's channel. Yeah. And they're like, you got you got to be playing with confidence if you think, well, we'll just stick north down the hooker channel. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but also, is. you know, like Steve, there's, there's partly Stephen Myler, who I love and I think has been the best signing of the resume in years, but he has signed on the condition that he doesn't have to run. Like he, he basically, he does all the game management, he kicks all his goals, but he does it stood still. And that is not a problem. You know, he'll just, he'll do all of the bits he need him to do, but he's not running at all. It's working really well for him um, yeah, and, yeah as you mentioned the, sort of the other regions probably struggling with their like the Scarlets I don't, know, I don't know Brad Moore was always a strange one in the sense that I thought he was really good and he did a lot of good things and yet they also did sort of lose their identity a bit hmm. um, but the, I don't know I, I feel like even Pivak wanted to change the identity slightly in his final year because I think yeah, he yeah. knew that, that he, they'd been rumbled a bit with, with the sort of the the two Leinster defeats in Dublin. Yeah. He tried to bring in more of a sort of, well, to, you know, Blake Thompson, uh, Kazium. He brought in all these sort of players. And he also had to bring in like two or three players to basically replace Ty Byrne. So he, yes. he brought in he brought in one second row and like Ed Kennedy, who can play all over the shop, in the idea yeah. that if I play three of these players, that will do the work that Ty Byrne was doing. Yes. Then I think I feel like Brad Moore and Glenn Delaney have probably just carried on in that sort of vein, and, and now we're sort of at a place where they're not instantly recognisable as Scarlets, but then they can still turn it on. Like yeah, against Bath, mm. Bath was just really good defence, like properly like rear guard, really good defence, and then just whenever an opportunity came, we we still got enough quality to do it, but I just don't think they do it. Consistently, I don't know. For me, it's it's down to the ten a bit. I don't know if Dan Jones or Angus O'Brien get the best out of the back line, mm. which probably will bring but, us. There's a couple of exciting players that I wanted to sort of talk about who I thought would like the ones we we want to watch this year. I guess Sam Costello is the first one of them. Yes, I yes, he it. is. I, I, I am. I think the the man who built the Sam Costello hype machine. Um, I first watched him play for Wales under-18s against England. He was incredible. And ever since, um, well, I then instantly, moments after that, had the vision of him scoring 43 points in the World Cup final against Uruguay in 2023. Um, and ever since that moment, I have been set on seeing this guy play. And I hate that thing of hyping up 10s too far. And like it's to the point in which 
I now know Sam Costello's seen me hype him up too much because um, I've had his brother and his dad both reply to me on Twitter. Um, and you reply to tweets about him, so I know. I know it's possible that can be a problem, but again, having briefly spoken to his dad, uh, they seem very set on keeping his feet on his ground on the ground. And I think yeah. the scouts are as well. And weirdly, I think being fourth choice will help that, you know, the fact that he's got a proper pecking order to climb and he's got an uphill struggle against uh, the head of him. Um, in the way he'd probably be getting more game time if he stayed at Leicester this season, but I don't know if it's good for him long-term as it will be. And certainly, you know, like he trained with the Welsh squad uh, over the Six Nations, which was... I'm sure fantastic for him. It would be sort of any young player to be exposed to that environment at 19. Um, but I'm I'm so excited about Sam Casello because he's got a really solid kicking and defensive game. You know, like there's, there's a few huge tackles I've seen him make, both chasing back, making cover tackles, and in terms of just making front of hits. But it's him with the ball in hand that really excites me. You know, like yeah. he's he's got a good range of passing. Um, he's got, you know, there was a... Uh, try scoring pass he gave to beat England last year for the under-20s year before year before um, in the last play um, and then you look at the break he made and the try he scored uh, try he scored for the, against the Dragons this this weekend just gone uh, the try he scored against Wales in England under-20s the try he scored against England under-18s the 16 tries he's going to score in the quarterfinal of the uh, 2023 World Cup um, against England Um I I I remain slightly obsessed by him and very excited for him. Um, yeah. But I think he's he's got the components to be the real deal. And hopefully, hopefully we don't do another Wales and kind of kind of end up chucking a really promising young player under the bus. And I've seen enough signs that this isn't going to be the case. But yeah, I think I think that's the Scarlets are very wary of that. I haven't spoken to people there before the mm. season. It was very much we're going to take this very slowly, which is what. That's what Leicester did. That was Leicester's mentality. Yeah. But then also, having spoken to his dad, I know that I think he got injured a couple of, maybe a year ago or two years ago. Okay. Um, well, he was at Leicester. Had he not got injured, Leicester were willing to start him in, I think, the, their Challenge Cup campaign. Wow, okay. But he got injured, so he didn't start. And then I think after that, he went on loan to... Um, but he, some of the championship, I think it's Amsterdam or something like that. So he went on loan there and, and he sort of learned a bit there. But yeah, he, the fact that Leicester was sort of willing to chuck him in, sort of play Challenge Cup games, sort of shows yeah. you the, the promise. And I think now he's starting to get consistent sort of minutes off the bench. That's only going to be good to him, I think. Um, yeah. And then the other sort of hype train sort of players, we, we've touched on the Ospreys, but it's, it's Kieran Williams, isn't it? That's yes. another one to be excited about. Oh, you just brought my two favourite players in the minute. And I brought up Stephen Milo organically. He's the first. Um, again, I love Kieran Williams. He is so much fun because um, he has no regard for anything around him. Um, he just kind of barrels into stuff. Like I was talking to my brother who coaches sort of like under 12s or something, under 11s. Um, and he, he was saying, Kieran Williams is the last good player I would show them to see what a 12 does. You know, like I don't want anyone trying to learn to be a 12 off Kieran Williams, but he's so effective because he's just this kind of like bundle of, he's kind of like, he's kind of like a, a better, more, he's no, he's a cross between Nick Grigg and Lamar Pay. Um, 
in he's got that kind of like really low center of gravity that he kind of barrels through people with. Um, but he, he's got such a turn of pace to him yeah. that really makes a difference and such acceleration. You look at that try Matt Provo scored against Edinburgh. Um, and he doesn't have to go through anyone because he just kind of hits that gap because he gets up to top speed so quickly. And he's so willing to charge into people full health. <laughs> you know, like he can, he can hit that, you know, he doesn't need to hit those out to in lines Hadley Parks did. He can just, because he's getting there so quickly, um, he's, he, he's, oh, he's great. Um, and he's, he's a wonderful crashable option. He's frequently actually breaking tackles and he has that kind of like awareness and want to stay on his feet and, and bust through. Um, and I worry there's a thing that sometimes happens to young players. Like when Owen Watkins first came through, he was a bit like that, a bit like that. He carried far higher, um, and he broke more tackles as a result. But as time's gone on, he had a few injuries. And as he sort of got into international squads and so on, he started to change as a player. And in some ways that might have to happen to Kieran Williams. I sort of hope it doesn't. And he remains this kind of like, like wild, like, like he's like a really short Scott Gibbs is the comparison that keeps being given. Um, but I, I, I want him to remain this player forever. I want 15 years of him just charging into things at a ridiculous pace. Yeah, no, he he looked really good on Friday night. I was there at Cardiff City Stadium, and mm. he just, just you lose track of how many times he carries it during like an Ospreys possession because he's just always yeah. off the deck and just sort of hitting the line the next time. He looked, yeah, really good. Um, I guess we'll touch upon we'll have to touch on the other two regions as, as you mentioned. Yeah, they both probably struggle. Well, the Blues, Cardiff Blues, are struggling probably for an identity in the sense that. We know what they want to do because we've seen them mm. do it on a, you know, the, the, basically someone said the other night, they're a one in three team and the yeah. one in three performances will be just breathtakingly good. It just feels to me like everything, hopefully not like Wales, but everything is built on things going perfectly for like, they have to get yeah. front of the ball. The conditions have to be good. And then suddenly they can take teams apart. If they don't do that, then they just tend to basically play in front of teams. Yeah, they, they play with a very, it's a very rugby league sort of backline. A lot of a lot of sort of pull passes and you know sort of decoy lines, and it's all it all comes from sort of Jared Evans. But if it's not going forward, then it does get very lateral. Yeah, and it's so Jason Tovey feels like the perfect ten for them to have on the bench, but he doesn't yeah. feel like the perfect ten to start if Jared isn't available. No, I think you feel like, I mean, they've got, who have they got else? Let's talk about them getting Priestland, which would be a good move for them. That Priestland would be fantastic. Priestland would be the best possible side yeah. to have Jared up and I mean, kind beyond, of teach him and have him learn from. Beyond that, I think they've got Luke Scully there, who's just yes. another yeah. one who's just you know, like Costello. You just sense, <laughs> you know, he's, he, he's a couple of years away from, from, from that. I mean, they signed him, I think they signed him at the start of this year. Mm. Two years ago, I'm losing track of time, but they, they, you know, they signed him, and he's he came off the bench the other night actually. But beyond that, I don't think he's really had too many appearances. And you know, yeah, he's, I think he's, that was he's a debut, wasn't it? Yeah, was, exactly. Yeah, you know, he's, he's, he's a young kid at the end of the day. He's not he's not going to start for them if Jared's not there. But, no, but it's going to be he's a good option to have. I kind of yeah. get the vibe off him. I got off Jared when he started playing for the Blues for the first time. Um, but again, I haven't, you know, I haven't, we haven't seen much of him, you know, you're going off a few YouTube clips and 10 minutes there. Um, but he, you know, he's on a, I, I believe he's on a long-term contract, yeah. which is kind of what you need him on. 
Um, because if he can come, you know, if if you can have him, oh, him and Jared learning from Priestland, that'd be ideal. Uh, and then he can begin to step a bit more probably next season yeah. uh, with the odd game this season to kind of, you know, to, to build some some confidence uh, and some just just to get me used to this level of competition uh, because it can be a huge step up. I think the issue for the Blues now is probably how how long have they had Mulville? Is it three seasons or four seasons now? I think four now. I think He's we're going to think it's the fourth season now. And I've spoken to coaches in the past. I spoke to Pivak about this. I spoke to Jackman and Clark and Mulville about basically after three seasons you should know mm. how your squad play. Like Pivak won the um, Pro 12 third season. Pat Lamb won the Pro 12 third season. And it's that sort of, by the third season, you've put your mark on the squad. And yeah. we're in the fourth season now, and it just still feels like you're still offering excuses for the Cardiff Blues. And I think yeah, I think this could be a tough year for, for Mulvihill, Hill, to be honest, in terms of that. Because I, I don't know... I mean, I don't know how much longer he can keep going with sort of middling results like this, but also I don't know who replaces him. I don't know who the Blues would go out and get in terms of finances or in terms of available jobs. Dwayne Peel's coming in in the summer as an attack coach. Now, I don't know whether there is some thought that maybe Peel can also be a successor Mm. or that Peel's going to be the final piece of Mulvihill's puzzle. So it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out over the next year for me. I think, well, yeah, at the minute, I think if you're looking at, in terms of coaching unrest in the Welsh regions, the Cardiff Blues are clearly the one further ahead than anyone. You know, the Dean Ryan's, everyone's content with the job. Dean Ryan's doing at the Dragons. Toby Blue's clearly doing a great job. I think, People are happy with Glenn Delaney because I think the Scarlets are always going to be there or thereabouts. Yeah. Now, simply because of what squad depth they have and everything exactly. else. Exactly. And you can give him time. You know, I think he yeah. kind of, he, he needs some time to settle and he hasn't yet had a single game with anything close to his strongest 15 available. So I think you certainly give him the season and you have a look next year at what he's doing. And because it's sort of a continuity thing, you know, like he yeah. was appointed to take over from, um, from from Brad Moore because because he knew what he was doing he knew the system blah 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 blah, blah. Um, so yeah so I again it, the Scarlets are winning games just they're winning uglier than than you want the Scarlets to be winning them but that shouldn't be a problem you know no. like the the main thing should be that they're they're actually being competitive in every single game you know and those results like they had in Bath um, and like the the incredible twenty eight nil win over Toulon as well. Um, which was some of the best rugby the Scars have played since they won the league. Um, but yeah, so the but yeah, in my head, I was trying to think back to that game, thinking I don't remember them playing too long. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason for that. Like, oh, I, uh, I can't remember. Why can't I remember that game? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but even even the win over the Ospreys, yeah, it just yeah, shows yeah. you like they weren't they weren't good. But when it came down to it, the bench. And that's that's what separates the Scarlets from the other three regions at the yes. minute. Is they they've genuinely just got such a good squad. Like I remember, yeah. was it the first day of the season? Well, the first day of the old season, whatever mm. it was, the nonsense. 
um, playing the Cardiff Blues, Park Scarlet, and they had about 11, 12 players missing. I think Shingler had just been ruled out with another injury. Right. Um, I think Tex Rotuba was still in Fiji because of mm. coronavirus. Um, uh, right, okay. He wasn't like building houses like Leo Nakawara, like trying to get out of a contract. He was yeah. he was genuinely stranded in Fiji for legitimate reasons. And they had all these players missing. And they, they, they still go and beat the Blues yeah. relatively comfortably. I think part of the problem with the Blues is they keep signing the wrong players. They keep signing, you know, so they've got so many sevens. Their entire budget for their pack seems to be yeah. spent on sevens. And now on... You know, if they see a reasonably cheap Welsh second row at another region, they sign them, you know, in the, the James Ratties, Roy Fontons of the world. And then Corey Hill has taken up, as I believe, quite a chunk of the budget. You know, I think he's he's not coming cheap. Yeah. Um, I thought but, he made, he makes sense to me, but it's just haven't, yeah, haven't oh, yeah. seen it yet in the sense that he is a really good ball handler, but he also... It's so useful for, for breakdown yes. efficiency, which I exactly. think is what the Blues need because they just yeah. they, they they can't always generate. You know, if Nick, basically <laughs> until Nick Williams retired, if Nick Williams wasn't playing, the Blues yes. don't get front football. Yeah, so they, they a bit like Wales, they need to figure out ways of generating momentum without big ball carriers. Exactly. Yeah, and then the rest of the budget seems to be just spent on as as. Uh, Rhiannon Garth Jones, writer for Rugby Pass and so on, put it, tarty backs. Um, <laughs> you know, so the, the 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 Nippers and the Hallam Amosses and so on of the world, who, and Amos was far solider this weekend against the Ospreys than he has been because yeah. he has not been on, you know, the finest form of his career. To say, I've always liked Hallam Amos a lot, of which rate them highly. Um, but yeah, the you know, they don't have the squad they need, or they're missing a number of the players they need. And as you say, I think Corey Hill is one of those players that they they'd want. Yeah. Um, and because you look at the squad they've got, and the, <laughs> I was thinking about this after that that derby, the way I'd play if I came in as coach now, and I'm not a coach, you know, I'd be a, I'd probably be terrible at it, and I'd lose every whatever. But um, instinctively, you want to be playing sort of Crusaders style. Like that's sort of two for two, and every player's handling the ball, every player's making decisions because that's the kind of squad they have, and that yeah. becomes, as you say, that thing of if one person makes a mistake, that then has a disproportionate knock-on effect, um, and they're not as ambitious as the Crusaders or as good, um, but there is something to say in that kind of they're putting too much weight on every single pass and things then falling apart, yeah. which was a little bit the problem with Ulster as well when Dwayne Peel was there in attack. So I can see them continuing that, but they were more efficient and they were slightly more ambitious as well. So that might be a good fit. They're surprisingly structured mm. for, for how you think of all the talent they got and you think maybe they would be a bit loose, but they, they're really regimented in that sort of rugby league style structure. Obviously, Hills Australian background, I think rugby league background. Mm. And when it works, it works really well because it picks off defenders and Jared Evans is trusted to pick passes and, and pick yeah. gaps. When it doesn't, it, like I say, it's so lateral, but I think we've only spent enough time dissecting um, the blue. We'll touch quickly on the Dragons. Okay. Um, I guess for them, it's just it's just more of the same, really, isn't it? Just keep, yeah. keep growing. I think, you know, they had sort of three years of, well, not three years, didn't quite get to three years of, of Bernard Jackman, where they they were told they were growing, but yeah, they, they weren't. And that was the sort of the weird false storm because I think people wanted to believe him. Yeah. 
and they wanted to believe that the the the, the dragons were, were were sort of improving. And in many ways, it's easy to sort of do that when you are the dragons because you're coming from a sort of position of nowhere. So you can sort of say, oh, yeah, but the, the improvements are happening. Yeah. And you can you can say it for a while before people start to realise, well, actually, they're not. Dean Ryan hasn't Dean Ryan hasn't done that. And I think Dean Ryan's done a really just, just a really good job of just week, 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 you know, just constantly improving and, and just, just always letting the, the, the stuff on the field do the talking. Absolutely, yeah. And slowly building a proper squad that can interchange, you know, they've got so many good back rowers now. Yeah. Uh, they've got plenty of solid players in most positions. Um, and he's clearly, as well as being, you know, a good sort of team manager and tactics and whatever, he's a good actual coach of players. You know, he's good at actually helping players improve, uh, which is a part of coaching that gets missed out when you get to the highest levels because it comes down to fine margins rather than yeah. actually helping these these guys improve kind of like Ted Lasso style. Um, so I, I like that about the Dragons. Um, I think there's a handful of, you know, like, there are, I mentioned Tavis Noyle earlier and, you know, Jamie Roberts and so on that are useful figures for the squad. Richard Hibbard with his new haircut. Um, Brock Harris as well. You know, these players that are really useful for, for the Dragons. Um, yeah, I think they've got a really solid squad now. Um, and I think they just kind of have to begin to transition towards winning more games, you know? And yeah. they did very solidly last year. But you need them to win maybe of the games where, you know, they got to a point where they were, uh, obviously they qualified for the, challenge, the Champions Cup. Um, so they were sort of beating the a lot of the lower end teams and they are beating them at home. Um, you need them to maybe win the odd away game against Zebra and Trevise, uh, no, yeah, Zebra and Benetton um, or, you know, whichever other team isn't looking like it at the moment. Um and then maybe start sneaking slightly more wins over Munster or Leinster, or, well, not, not Leinster perhaps, but, you know, the bigger ah, teams Le- when it Leinster comes to lost, Leinster lost on the weekend, they're done. Yeah. The- <laughs> Saracens, Crusaders, the All Blacks even, just all of them. Just just the Dragons can take any of them. They've all lost games as last year. Who cares? The championship team, Saracens, they can beat them easily. Um, <laughs> all the South African teams are about to come into the league, just go, go away to the Bulls and, and nick a win. <laughs> Have you stopped to think about the fact that some point this year, right, we're going to watch one of those really drab games at Rodney Parade that happen all the time where it's just, it's slightly dull and the pitch looks in awful condition um, and nothing's really happening and the score's <laughs> but it, like... But it's going to be Sia Khaleesi. Sia Khaleesi's going to be playing. Like a player people will be talking about in a hundred years' time if rugby still exists will be playing in one of those really drab, dull Rodney Parade games. I well, love that. What I love, and I don't think it's really been widely reported anywhere, mm. is, um, and I don't, I, I'm not sure how I feel about the South African teams yet, just mm. uh, or at least the Rainbow Cup. Yeah, <laughs> I think South African teams coming into the league could be good. Um, in the stricter sense, I think the Rainbow Cup's just going to be weird. Yeah, it's, it's basically it's basically the Autumn Nations Cup, but for clubs. Yeah, which but the everyone rain- loved, so yeah, that'd be fine. Yeah, yeah, who knew that making up tournaments with no context or silly names doesn't work? But the Rainbow Cup, <laughs> the name itself is 16 years old because the WRU right. first proposed a tournament with South African clubs in 2005 and called it the really? Rainbow Cup. 
yeah, I found I found it. It's like an archive story on the WIU website, 2005. Like, oh, the WIU, they, we want to do us, the Scottish teams, uh, get some Italian teams in there. They only not even joined the um, <laughs> Pro 14 at that point. Yeah, uh, Irish teams and and some South African teams. I think it was the the Curry Cup teams at that point. Right, so I think we knew our limits. Um, <laughs> and they called it the Rainbow Cup. And I just love the fact that now, sixteen years later, they go, "What should we call it?" And they're like, "Well, oh, got something in the files back at <laughs> the Prince of Stadium says Rainbow <laughs> Cup." We hired a guy to do the graphic design. We had the trophy made. Right. The tr- the tr- and do you know what when we went to pick up that trophy we found it in archive you never guess who we run into it's such, a, it's such an awful name and everyone everyone rightfully gave a stick on Twitter like, it's, I the was... fa- it's the fact that they had 16 years to sit on it it makes it worse <laughs> I was, you know, that thing that happens where like I wasn't on Twitter the day that was announced and I sort of came back in and by, you know, like the six hours I'd missed or whatever over Christmas, um, everyone knew what the Rainbow Cup was. And I assumed it was like the Bingham Cup. You know, I assumed it was like the, it was like the LGBT rugby trophy. And for some reason it was inexplicably massive this year, uh, which, you know, would have been great. But, but no, no, it's, um, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, but it's because Rainbow Nation, surely. Yeah, there's only is. one of the nations there. And like that Who makes knows? more sense as if it had been the Rainbow Cup instead of Super Rugby Unlocked, which means nothing. What, what was locked in the first place? Um, lockdown. Uh, okay. Oh, is that actually why they've called it that? I, d- I don't know. I'm just thinking. That would make sense. Is it just because <laughs> there were so many South African second rows? I was the man. I was go. the marketing man for the um, <laughs> for <Sansa laughs> this year. You? Yeah. Wow. Can you can you let me use some clips in my videos, please? Oh, yeah. Sure. Um, Brilliant. Go <laughs> like that. Yeah, that was just, easy. Just yeah. do it. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell the lawyers to cease and desist. <laughs> It'll be fine. Cheers. Um, so yeah, I think we've pretty much reached the end of. Looking cool. forward, I was going to say we've reached the end of 2021, but that's premature. We've <laughs> yes. reached the end of looking forward to 2021 from the fourth day of 2021. Yeah, so we're looking forward to 361 days. Yes, but I had to, we're I had not to think. I had to think of what if it was a leap year or not, which it yeah, clearly is. Last, it last year was a leap year. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think it's going to be a good year for rugby. He said. Optimistically, with no no sense of awareness of what's happened in the last twelve months. <laughs> I hope it's a good year for rugby. I hope rugby is played. I mean, yeah, well. there's there's basically every union's hemorrhaging cash. Um, we've got a lawsuit on the way. <laughs> um, we've still got a pandemic. We should, um, well, yeah, you know. Although I'm pretty sure the, play the, the lions are going to be played in front of fans. They're, yeah, but they're <laughs> yeah, but they're going to be playing in the knoll. Like they're going to take it to Sardis Road finally. I enjoyed. I, 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 we'll touch quickly on Alex Payne's tweet because I think it's it's okay. worthwhile. Just sort of the idea of a lions tour at home. One, it's not a tour. No. Uh, <laughs> I just like the fact that he threw Celtic Park in there for like a midweek game. <laughs> Like yeah. Murray Murrayfield doesn't get a test, but Celtic Park gets a. Um, I don't I don't really understand why Celtic Park would just be in. Yeah, you know, I know I know it did the Pro 14 final, but it's taking rugby to the people. Yeah. Um, you know, Old Trafford gets a game. They all get a game. Every everyone gets a game. As I say, no games at the Knoll. Why not give rugby to the masses? Why not play it at this stadium where they don't have running water? Sardis Road. 
Exactly. Sorry, I mean, they do have exactly. one in the water. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I didn't mean to jump in so quickly there. <laughs> ah, there we go. That's the, that's the podcast gone in Pontable. <laughs> oh, that's even worse. Just, just say, something about, say something about how great the Cardiff Blues name is. You know, this just really burn their bridges. Yeah, they had on the scoreboard the other night because obviously Cardiff City Stadium scoreboards aren't that big, and maybe because obviously Cardiff City. They said Cardiff, and then the Ospreys. Ooh. So, Ooh. which I have, I have no problem with. I don't. I don't care. No, no, no I have. I'm I'm hyper aware. This is like a side note to end the podcast. I'm hyper aware that I never call them just the blues. Mm, okay. To the point, I just I, I I I don't know why. I think it upsets a certain section of their fan base, so I, I make sure that I never call them the blues. Fair enough. Probably needlessly so. I'm probably. <laughs> I, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with calling them the blues. But I just think people get annoyed by it, so I try not to do it. No, that's that's Bob Dylan's mantra as well. <laughs> just, me being, just me being commendable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the, the argument you always make is are you talking about Auckland and stuff like that? So yeah, yeah, you end up or more likely sign Patrick Tupelosi. Like Bedford, come on, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least say Bedford. Bedford makes sense. <laughs> Nobody thought <laughs> I was speaking about Auckland. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. No, but in terms of rugby teams, you're likely to talk about. You're more likely to talk about the team Bowden Barrett and Dan Carter played for no. then no, but no okay. I think I think the Mikey Rea link between Bedford and Cardiff okay helps me um, there I recognise this is going on for a long time but I am going to look at Bedford Blues as squad um, because I'm curious as to who they've currently got on their books um, they currently we'll- have a squad of about 15 people they've got Grayson Hart Scotland International and inventor of Marxism um, wow I don't know if anyone's ever seen that tweet but um, Grayson Grayson Hart once tweeted, "Why don't the like richest hundred people in the world just all give some money to like all the really poor people?" I, just love, I, went, it. I love it Great. when people just tweet things as though they think yeah. it's the first person to have thought of things. It's just, I just, I love the naivety of it, but I just, it's just because it's coming from a good place. That's why I love it. <laughs> yes, exactly, it's because yeah. when they hit when they hit send, they genuinely think this is this is making a difference. <laughs> I've changed things. <laughs> that's why I love it. Oh, yeah, I've also the... got Hong Kong international Matt Worley. Was he the one who played for the bar? No, he wasn't. Um, but there was a Hong Kong winger who played for the Barbers. Oh, and they've got, is that the, no, it's not. Never mind. Sorry, I'm just getting needlessly excited <laughs> the squad. Um, the, most of their squad used to play for, no, for Northampton's Academy. <laughs> they've kind of shuffled over. Man, there's an Irish prop here who has played for, 12 professional clubs. Wow. Nuneaton to Worcester Warriors to Stourbridge to Rugby Lions to Birmingham Solihull to Jersey to Leinster where he didn't play a game to Jersey Reds to Bedford Blues. Wow. That's a journey. That's a journey. Um, okay. Minutes, Sorry. Minutes anyway. Yes. I think on that note, we're going to end uh, the podcast there. Robbie, it's uh, been a massive pleasure having you on to look ahead. Likewise. To the Likewise. New Thank year. you for having me. Um, and obviously, as always, you can catch all the latest news on Wales Online.